this episode, Patrick Butcher, former CFO at Capita, shares his insights on how to lead and manage successful teams and the problems that keep even the most talented teams from realizing their full potential. Hi, I'm Rob, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's finance leaders. Patrick, thanks so much for doing this. It's great to have you on the show. Just for people that don't know, we start every show with a quick explanation. So Patrick, what is your role? Rob, it's lovely to be here and good to meet you. I, in transition at the moment, I've just recently been the Group Chief Financial Officer at the Capita Group in London, which is the UK's biggest tech outsourcer. And we run call centers, big HR business, IT outsourcing and software employing about 65,000 people. And I stepped down from the Capita board at the very end of last year, and I'm supporting the new CFO as he transitions in. And I'm reflecting on what I'm going to do next. Do you have a clear uh, idea as to what that might be or, or, or in a moment of reflection, as you say? It's a good question. And I don't have a clear view. I've been a chief financial officer operating at the topco level with non-executives on a board since about 1994, so 25 years or so. And so I know how to do that. And I know how to get a job like that. But what I've found is that those jobs can be all consuming as you do them. And I've typically tried to do jobs where the the content of the job and the purpose of the company is significant and useful. So Capita yeah, essentially exists to help people. And the, you know, the company purpose is, is we create better outcomes. So we will be paying people's pensions or recruiting them into jobs or a variety of things. Before that, I've been in public transport at the Go Ahead Group, which runs buses and trains and, and Network Rail Group, which runs the UK's rail infrastructure. And so the jobs have consumed a huge part of my life and the significant component of my mental and emotional energy. And I've never really thought about what it is that I want to do with my life. So at 50 something, I'm going to spend a few months to really test whether using the skills and experience that I have developed over many years, and and yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes, so I've got a lot of learning, and using that in another big job in a large complex organization or doing or doing something different and really enjoying the process of reflecting like i'm sure many people listening to this i live in london and we are in lockdown as a result of the coronavirus and i would much rather be doing my thinking in the warm i'm a keen cyclist so i'd much rather be cycling in south africa than wandering around wandsworth common in the wet which is what i'm doing at the moment (laughs) So just bringing it back to Capita, so um, that clearly was, along with Go Ahead, a a very consuming role. And at Capita, it's been a challenging time, as it has been for many businesses. And even before I think COVID struck, uh, Capita was going through a a challenging time. COVID probably made that even more difficult. But perhaps you could talk to the financial strategy that you were implementing at at Capita and, and how you would articulate that how you would talk about the financial strategy to, to, to people within Capita. 
Okay. Two minutes of context, because Capita, while it's not the largest company in the world, it's certainly the most complex company I've ever worked at. Capita started life as a, a local government, what you would describe as a white collar outsourcer. So doing administrative and technical type roles for local authorities, and then broadened out of that into a broad technology offering, contact center offerings, and software business, as well as a number of very large government contracts. And and it grew principally through acquisition in the last 10 years or so, acquisition either of a contract or acquisition of a company. They bought roughly 10 companies a year. And the philosophy of the previous management team was to run the business very much as as a kind of collection of individual businesses. So no There was no integration. There was a common financial system, but no integration of system, process, culture, values. Yeah, none of that. And what was going on really was that the business looked like it was growing because revenue was growing through acquisition. And it looked like profits were growing because profits were growing through acquisition and some aggressive accounting treatments. But in reality, what was going on is that was fueled by debt. And at some point, as as always happens, the the chickens came home to roost. And so really, the the financial strategy of Capita over the last probably four years, in fact, from, from before the current chief executive arrived, was to try and reduce the debt burden. So Capita has a number of really high quality businesses and assets that that can be sold. And so one was sold in 2016. We sold a few more in 2018. And the, those proceeds were used really to, to bring down the, the, the debt and reduce the leverage of the business, but also to invest in the transformation of the business. And so what we've been engaged in over the last two or three years is trying to transform and turn around capita. And the financial dimension to that strategy and the much wider business dimension, which I'm happy to talk about, but the financial dimension was really taking cost out building the financial infrastructure to drive revenue growth and turn the business back into a business that generated cash. And as we came into 2020, we were hoping that for the first time in, I think, four or five years at least, we were going to show modest organic growth. And then, of course, COVID hit, which has put quite a challenge into our financial strategy. So that financial strategy and the and the need to take cost out of the uh, out of the business and to to help with that restructuring, how did you as a as a finance leader cascade those objectives throughout your team and then enable the team to contribute to achieving that restructuring and transformation of, of capita? Well, there were sort of two perspectives on that. As I've mentioned, capita is a very diverse set of businesses. So the finance team at Capita is much bigger than it should be for a business the size of Capita because each of the little businesses still has quite a lot of their own finance team. So so the good news is that you can only survive at Capita in finance if you are really smart and you work really hard. So there are a lot of fantastic people there. And so really getting people focused on what the end objective was, was quite straightforward. But what I think more of a challenge was actually the finance transformation because what we were trying to do is transform the business at the same time as we were trying to transform the finance function. I inherited a very ambitious system implementation, which I stopped after five or six months because it was clear that the business was not ready for something that sophisticated. And so we focused on 
standardizing process and procedure where we could, centralizing the activities, and then moving the activities to lower cost locations, either within the UK or globally. Capita has a large presence in India, so we would we would move things to our business in India. And really, I use the transformation of finance as a metaphor to help the team understand the need for the overall business transformation and, and focusing on cost control, which was a key objective for the, for the business as a whole, for example, and saying in finance, we have to do the same. So we have to you know, reduce our costs. And I think we took 10 or 15% out of the cost base in 2020. And so that you know, using the finance function as an example was I felt a better way because it's very hard for somebody running a 50, 60 million pound business unit to understand the, the kind of overall capital structure of the group. And so yeah, you can't really engage people with that that sort of high corporate finance. You explain it and describe it so that people yeah, at least have an intellectual understanding of it. But in order to make it real and granular, I felt that showing that it wasn't just them over there in the business that needed to change, but we were not only leading and driving the financial dimension of the change in the group, but we were also leading by example and changing ourselves. And did that in any way um, mean a change of behavior, perhaps in the way that your team was was partnering with those uh, business units and those businesses in any way? I think two key changes. The first was an increased level of collaboration within the finance function. Capital was run as a series of mini businesses all operating in silos. People didn't know what anybody else did, which had all kinds of other issues. There was no cross-selling. There was no, you know, people would compete for the same piece of work. It was, yeah, it was the Wild West some years ago. So increased collaboration, realizing that you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Somebody else has probably already done that somewhere in capital. So let's let's collaborate and learn from each other. And I think the second thing, which I guess I missed in the first year, but really picked up in 2020 was cash. Because one thing Capita was very good at was managing its year in cash. Did it always do it in the way that you and I would want these things to be done? Probably not. So I sort of thought they understood cash. But what I realized as I, as I got into the business a bit more was none of the metrics were about cash. It was all about PBT. And that was kind of how the business got into trouble because they were focusing on revenue and profit, not on cash. One of the city analysts who covered the stock, and yet all analysts have models because they love models, but in his model, he didn't even have a balance sheet. He simply had revenue, profit, margin, and a multiple, and that was how he valued the stock and knocked off whatever the debt was at any point in time. Getting the business really focused on cash, so we started a what we called a working capital improvement program. And thank heavens we did because we really needed it in 2020, which was focused on getting every single person in the business in finance function focused on collecting cash. Not you know, We took a principal decision about our suppliers and we said, we are going to pay our suppliers on time. We do a lot of work with government. They have pretty strict you know, principles and rules, which, which by the way, I completely agree with. And you pay everybody on time and you pay small suppliers quicker than you pay big suppliers and you pay micro suppliers even quicker. So we were trying to get big suppliers within 60 days, small SMEs within 30 and micros within 14. So that wasn't a place we could go for cash. It was a place our predecessors had gone for cash and, and stretched them out a bit. But what we were focusing on was the time lag between doing the work and getting the cash in the bank. And as a consequence of the program, 
we probably, I would say we generated 75, 80 million pounds worth of cash. But, but more important than that, we, we generated a focus that everybody could buy into. And there was an email to you know, two or 300 people every morning. You know, once we got into the kind of COVID panic, because what my, my worry when, when I was looking from March 2020 towards my June half year, my worry was that in June, a whole bunch of my big customers would suddenly go, we'll pay capita in July. That'll be all right, and 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 so I needed to make sure that we were we were well ahead of the game. So we had a, we had a daily email, and I was on the email, and not every day, but three or four times a week, I would I would ask a question or make a comment, and I think the signal that sent, and and what I really a lesson that I reinforced for myself is that what we as senior leaders do, and what we choose to pay attention to, and the comments we choose to make on the material that we see has a huge impact on people's behavior. People could see that I was paying attention to this. And yeah, as we got better at the data, because Capita does not have sophisticated systems, I always described getting information at Capita. I would go and talk to my sort of group financial controller and say, I want this question. And he would send out the carrier pigeons to the four corners of the empire, and then they would come back, and some of them would have got shot, and some of them would have been eaten, and we'd have most of the data we needed, and we'd send out a few more. So it was it's a difficult place to get data. But once we'd settled the data, we you know, there were little competitions and you know, different divisions, different business units, and that created a real sense that we were all focused on the same thing, which I think was hugely helpful in motivating and directing people towards a key objective. Yeah, and it sounds like you had a clear vision of what needed to be done. And you mentioned a couple of tools that you you used to achieve that, one of which was a daily email through which you would comment and pick up on what you saw as the, the, the key points. And you just mentioned their competition, but I'd love to get a deeper sense of what other tools perhaps you used in the weekly rhythm of meetings that you held or, or the way that you cascaded objectives and goal setting, perhaps other tools that you used and implemented in order to drive that same alignment to that key goal of cash preservation. So I'm going to, come, I'm going to step back and then come back at that. Because okay. one of the things that I think is really important in leadership generally, is providing the people that we lead with five C's. And and the first C is context. And so unless people understand why they're doing something, then they can never be committed and or clear about what it is they're trying to do. So I spend a lot of time with obviously more time and more detail with the, with the senior team, but with the, the wider Sort of finance leadership, which is capita is 250 people or so, explaining why we're doing things, making sure that everybody understands you know, why are we transforming capita? What's the point of capita? Why are we here? And then what is our role as a finance team? So being really clear about context. And then the next C is about commitment, because simply that people understanding why something is important doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be committed to doing it. I'm sure those on the call who have children, young children, yeah, their children sort of understand why it's important they clean their teeth every night, but they're not necessarily committed to cleaning their teeth. And yeah, the workplace is no different. So, so once people understand why we're doing something, they then need to feel that they have had the opportunity to disagree because commitment very rarely breaks out spontaneously. 
So providing a space, and again, you can't do it with 250 people, but you can do it in a smaller group, where we can have a debate and an, and an argument about not so much whether or not cash is important, because that's a, a sort of principle level, but but what's the best way of doing it? How are we going to do it? What are we going to prioritize? So really letting people you know, conflict and have conflict. And so often, particularly in the UK, people are frightened of conflict. And I'm not talking about interpersonal conflict or, or storming capital buildings or anything, but I'm talking <laughs> about ideological conflict. And if you read books about the great businesses, they are businesses where People have had vigorous debates about ideas and you know, in finance, it's not really ideas, it's kind of you know, ideas of how to do finance better, but it's the same it's same principle. So through conflict, then we can secure commitment. The third C is clarity, which is your point about goals and objectives, but it, it's something very often that particularly finance people will reach straight for the third C. They'll just issue goals, targets, rules, objectives, yeah, and they'll cascade them in a lovely table and they'll land on people's desks and they have no idea why they're trying to do it and they sure as hell aren't committed to it. So you need clarity, but there's no point getting to clarity until you've been through context and commitment. And once you've been through context and commitment, if you have secured people's authentic commitment to the objective that you're seeking to execute on, actually, the rest of it is pretty easy. If we all know that cash is important, I don't have to set people objectives. I just have to measure the progress that we're making. And I have to help them. I have to provide them with the tools so they can measure their own performance. Because the, the magic that happens when people have got context and commitment is that they are more ambitious than you would ever be that they will set themselves more demanding targets. Their performance will be higher than you expect it to be or than you would have set at the beginning of the process because they understand why it's important and they're committed to it. And then the, the clarity bit, I think, is the easy bit. That's great insight because I'm so used to working around a framework such as OKRs, which in, in, in what you're saying would fit this model. It would fit in sort of the, the clarity part where you, you, you go straight to what are we going to achieve this quarter or what are we going to achieve this year? And we write these objectives and we have our, our KPIs, what we're going to measure those objectives uh, and the success of those objectives by. But what you're saying is that there is actually those two preceding steps that is context and commitment and that authentic debate where, you know, Jeff Bezos calls it disagree and commit. So you can go through that commitment cycle. Even if you don't end up agreeing, you've had the intellectual debate and you then commit to delivering. That is exactly right. Yeah, don't get me wrong, KPIs are really important. And we'll come back to the, the second two Cs a little bit later. But one of the things that I've learned in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, is the importance of what I call a performance management system. And I don't mean people performance, I mean business performance. And I'll describe what I mean by that in a minute. And the performance management system needs to connect to the risk management system. And so often in companies, Risk management is something that's done by the insurance person or the internal audit person, or if it's a small business, the FD does it just before the accounts are produced. But actually, if you've got a strategy, risk management is really easy. Because if you know what you're trying to do, risk management is a list of stuff that's going to stop us doing what it is that we're trying to do. If, however, you don't know what you're trying to do, you can't do risk management. If you don't have a clear strategy, you can't do risk management because 
you're not trying to achieve anything, so there's nothing that can get in your way. And so structure writing, yeah, I write the risk management stuff myself because if you phrase it clearly and it's connected to the business strategy, then it makes sense to everybody. And then the performance management system is simply the way that you're striving to manage the risks and achieve the objectives. What I think we struggle with in the modern era is there's so much data and there's brilliant you know, power BI and you know, all these things which are amazing. So people can get vast quantities of data and thousands of KPIs, live, interactive, however you want them, drill downs, drill ups, all kinds of amazing things. And, and they haven't started in the right place. The first question about building a performance management system is for whom is the performance important? And that's a stakeholder question. And different businesses will be different. At Capita, we had clients who were people who paid the bill, like you know, a, a pension fund might pay the bill, and customers. And the customers are the, are the pensioners whose pensions we're trying to pay. So we had clients and customers as one stakeholder, people, which was the internal people at Capita, suppliers and contractors, and then you know, society and community and investors. Now we know for whom it is, if you remember what our objective was, we create better outcomes. So the first performance management system is for whom do we create better outcomes? So that gives you your stakeholder list. Then the next question is, okay, what's important to them? Not what's important to me, the person designing the KPI system, or worse, which is mostly what happens, what data have I got? Yeah, that's the wrong place to start. So you say, well, what's important? Yeah, and, and so just take suppliers as an example. We agreed with our suppliers. We pay them on time. So question one, are we paying our suppliers on time? And that leads you to the KPI, but also manages a risk that you have over on your risk management system, which is in order for us to be recognized by the government as a high-quality supplier, you know, contractor for government, one of the things we need to do is make sure we're, we're paying our suppliers on time. So you've got a connection then between the, the, the performance that you're looking at and the risk system. And then I have a rule, no more than 12 indicators. And that sets up another wonderful conflict because then you have a parachute debate. People have got lots of questions. So you've got 20 questions or 30 or how many you've got. Right, which are the most important? Now, there's lots of other stuff in a large complex business like that, but you have to measure. And you've got to measure it and you need someone to be worrying about it and doing it and getting it done. But it's not on the one page that the board needs to look at every month. And that's where you set the 12. The 12 sit on that one page that's presented to the board. And then let's make the link with the, with the performance management system because this is really insightful stuff. So the performance management system is a key part of clarity because one of the questions inside clarity is how do we know we're winning? Yeah, and the performance management system tells you what your targets were and, and whether or not you're winning. And then, then just finishing off the five Cs. So yeah, as a leader, we're responsible for helping our people understand the context for securing their authentic commitment to you know, the project or the plan or the change or whatever you're doing, and then providing with clarity about what their accountability is and da-da-da-da. Then the fourth C for me is what I call connections. Simply by virtue of the position that we have in the organization as leaders, we can make connections that our people can't make. You know, we can show them, connect them to people in other departments and say, did you know that you know, you're in the pensions team? Did you know that over in the resourcing team, they've actually already dealt with that problem? 
or did you know that Jimmy is trying to fix that problem and doesn't know how to do it? Or we can connect them to people outside the organization because we bring with us a wider range of experience typically than, than the people in our team might have. We can connect them to other members on the executive. I'm talking from, from my perspective, but it would be the same wherever. So we can, we can make connections. And by making connections, we can short-circuit learning because people – we're wired, particularly as finance people, where we're not quite as bad as doctors and lawyers who are much worse, but we're wired to take personal accountability. And that's what our training tells us. Yeah, it's your, your accounts, your judgments, you must be. Yeah. And so that drives us to do too much ourselves and to try and solve all of the problems that the world has. We try and solve you know, ourselves. And, and by making connections, you, you open people's eyes. And of course, once you make connections for them, then they start to realize the power of connections and they start to make connections within their peer group and for their own people. So, so connections, I think, is, it's almost like a productivity tool. It's just hugely important, particularly in large, complex organizations. If you've got 10 people in your company and you are the only finance person, clearly making connections is not a massive challenge for you. And for me, it's, a, it's also about a mindset, a mindset of being open and collaborative and, and curious. Uh, just a little bracket. In the early part of my career, I was absolutely convinced that my primary responsibility to, was to come up with the right answer. And that was sort of true when you're doing a spreadsheet. You need to come up with a good spreadsheet. And then as you progress through your career and become more senior, I've realized now that my main job is coming up with good questions. And good questions are much harder to come up with than good answers. Anyway, so a little bracket. The fifth C is compassion. And, and something that you don't often hear CFOs talking about. And I talk a lot about compassion. The world that we live in is really hard. And People talk a lot about work-life balance, and yeah, the last year has been a, a peculiar year, and, and I probably spent 50% of all the time that I was talking to my team talking about you know, those sorts of issues. But the world we live in is tough, and mm -hmm. people spend a huge amount of time. They used to spend a huge amount of time at work. They now spend a huge amount of time working, but at home. So we talk about work-life balance, and I've always said that that is nonsense, and it's not because... The, from the direction that people think I'm coming from, but because it suggests that you have work and you have a life and that these two things are somehow separate and you can attain some mystical balance between your work and your life. That is absolute bullshit. And it doesn't work. And we've learned in COVID that it doesn't work. We've learned in lockdown, really everybody now agrees with me, which is wonderful. What we do have, however, is we have a life that has multiple dimensions to it. And so you, people have you know, a relationship with a significant other. They might be parents. They might be carers. They've got money issues. They've got diet issues. They've got work fulfillment issues. They've got capability issues. They've got health and fitness, a whole, you know, and that's our life. And what we know is that if we have a new child, that we're going to overfocus on that, and that's going to put our life out of balance. If you start a new job, you're going to overfocus on that. If there's a big project going on work, you're going to overfocus. And the, the purpose of it is to help people firstly acknowledge that. Secondly, to recognize that if you're pushing hard in one area, something else is going to give. And so what I try and encourage people to do is to be deliberate about what's going to give. Don't leave it to chance. Because the thing that will give by chance is probably the thing that you shouldn't allow to give. And it might be 
yeah, in my case, as a man from a very traditional kind of background and, and hustle, it was typically time with the children. And you sort of regret that a little bit. And then I've aimed off and corrected and, and various other things as I've gone through. But, but it, yeah, it might be your diet. And so when I talk to my, when I have my one-to-ones with my direct reports, at least half the conversation is about the other dimensions of their life. And so I have, I've set someone a, with their enthusiastic agreement, I sent somebody a weight loss target as a bonusable objective. And because he was struggling with his weight. And I said, well, what gets measured gets managed. Let's stick it in. Why wouldn't you? Another person who worked for me who had a young family and his, his wife worked and he, I'd just given him a new job and he was burning the candle at, at both ends. And he was just about to go on holiday and he had a heart attack. 40, he would have been early, yeah, 41, 42. And he went, he went away. It was, it was, he was fine. Went off on his holiday. And when he came back, I said to him, right, you're going to write down a list of boundaries, work boundaries, family boundaries, time for you, set of rules. Are you going to talk to your wife about it? And you're going to agree them with her. Then you're going to come in and talk to me and we're going to agree them. Then I'm going to meet your wife and I'm going to agree them with her. And if you breach any of those boundaries, I'm just going to fire you. And and I said, and I'll know if you breach because I'm going to talk to your wife and I'm going to watch your email. And yeah, one of his boundaries was not to go on the email before eight o'clock in the morning. I said, if I see you on the email, because I can see you, because yeah, it's computers, you can see everything, then I'm going to fire you. And he said, but what if I'm doing a great job? Or what if I'm really busy? I said, you can die working for somebody else. You're not dying working for me. And he's worked for me a couple of times and would do anything. Because I showed him that I was more interested in him than I was in his output. And you can, of course, by focusing people's noses to the grindstone, you can get more output out of them in the short term. And we've all we've all worked like that. I've been managed like that. I've worked like that myself. And it's it's effective if you have to get something done. But but it becomes a drug that you can't give up. And if you want people to be sustainably productive in the workplace, then they need to be managing their lives in a sustainable way. And I think that's the meta point, isn't it? It's the desire to have everyone working and bringing them their best self to work. And they can only bring, you can only bring your best self to work if you're able to integrate the various facets of your life, if you have the self-awareness or, or help being given the awareness to take a step back, to look at the different elements of your life and to put in, as you say, the boundaries around certain elements of that, of your various facets of your life. And by doing that, that's what delivers ultimately the possibility of bringing your best self to work and being your best self both at work and outside of work. Correct. It's not rocket science. And the other thing is that there's huge leakage between the different elements of our life. And and you see it when you have somebody like Clive Woodward, who's the rugby coach, for those that don't watch rugby, and he talks about management. And what does some chap who plays rugby know about management? Well, 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 there's leakage. So I've learned as much from parenting courses that I went on to help me be a better parent, which little bracket, sorry, I'm passionate about parenting. If people want to learn how to drive, they take lessons. A great tip from the parenting coach was never nag and never remind, which for anyone who's a parent of a child, think how much time you waste of your life nagging and reminding. It's a time-saving tool, but it's the same in the workplace. As soon as you nag or remind, or in, in our world, send an email or a WhatsApp, how are you doing with the deliverable? Are you on schedule? The message you're sending 
in the act of doing that is either I don't trust you, which is hugely undermining, or it's not your accountability, it's mine. You have your job and I have my job. My job is to help you do your job better, not to do your job. That's great insight. The, the What you're saying about being able to take lessons from all, all walks of life, both parenting, sports, coaches, and, and integrate that all together. I think these five C's are, are, are so insightful. And I just I just want to step back to the connections because you mentioned that one of the key roles that you play as a leader in finance is to make those connections across the business. And therefore, for yourself, you have to have those relationships across the business. And so I would imagine that that then dictates to a certain degree or influences to a certain degree your working week and and what you prioritize within your working week and how you integrate that element. So does that mean that, that, that part of your working week, and I'd love to get an insight, and I think it'd be great to hear a bit more about your working week, but is part of your working week actually developing and, and growing those relationships with key stakeholders around the business for you to then be able to make those connections for people within your team? Absolutely. You can't connect somebody to something that isn't there. You know, it's like you know, wiring up a, an amplifier. If you haven't you know, put the wires to the speaker, nothing's going to happen. I am a very relational person. And for me, relationships are, are a key currency. So I invest a lot of time, energy, and effort. And it, it doesn't have to be endless hours in the pub or endless hours yeah, in a coffee shop or whatever whatever one's beverage of choice is. Yeah, you, you build relationships by doing things with people and by noticing that you're doing things. So one of the, one of the things I try and do when, when I start a new job is if you just use the, the, the sort of divisional leaders on an executive as, 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 as the example, is understanding what their issues are. The fastest way to build a relationship, I think, in business is to help somebody with their problem. And it might be that their budget is wrong or their finance business partner is hopeless or they can't get their expenses paid because the system doesn't work. There's a hundred things it could be. But helping to fix people's problems is a way of building a relationship, demonstrating to people that we as finance add value beyond the kind of behind the scenes plumbing that we have to do, demonstrating that we're interested in them and their business. The most engaging thing, I think, is being interested in other people. Everybody likes to talk, well, not everybody, most people like to talk about either themselves or their business or their family or something. Everybody's got something they like to talk about. And if you spend time listening to them, you, you can find out what it is that they're, they're interested in. But you're absolutely right. As the CFO, you are the ambassador for the finance function and therefore the relationship, the internal relationships you have are hugely important, not, not just to support through, through connections, which could be anything from a formal mentoring. I'm passionate about cross-functional mentoring. And, and so you get a, a business leader to mentor a finance person and, and, and vice versa, but also for those specific focused problem-solving type applications that we were discussing earlier. Staying on the subject of leadership, if you were going to give uh, some advice to perhaps finance directors who are looking to step up into the CFO role or CFOs at smaller organizations who want to lead better, what would be your sort of advice? Would you center around the, the five C's and the performance management system? Would they be the key, the key piece of advice or, or, or perhaps it'd be something else? I think so much of what, of the leadership that is required 
is situational. So Boris thought that all he had to do was Brexit and he would be okay. He did not realize that he had to lead in a pandemic. So the leadership skills, and I'm not going to get into debate about whether he's done well or badly, everyone will have their own view, but the leadership skills that he's needed have been very different than the leadership skills that he thought he was going to need. And therefore, for all of us at different points in our career, we're going to need to use different toolkits. So one tip would be build out your toolkit. Make sure that you are curious about leadership. Read books, listen to podcasts, obviously, but read books and be curious. Because I think the route to learning is curious. Yeah, all medical research is trial and error. Everyone says we're four years away from a cure for lung cancer. It's like, no, we're not. You just want us to give you more money for another four years so you can see what does and doesn't work. And yeah, Thomas Edison, I found 2,000 ways that the light bulb doesn't work. And so it's curiosity that's driven most of human progress. So develop skills, be curious, and as much as possible, try and think about where your stakeholders are. If you're writing a board paper, don't start with what it is you want to tell the board, because then you will write a narrow paper to which the board has the option of either agreeing, which is obviously your preferred approach, or disagreeing, but they can't engage in a debate. So you can't really secure the board's commitment. Whereas if you say, I wonder what questions the board might have. And I learned this lesson you know, powerfully. A chairman some years ago metaphorically threw a paper back at me and said, you have simply vomited everything that you know about this topic on this set of pages. You have not solved for one minute the questions that I or the other board members might have, which was delivered brutally from a man that I actually don't really like, but yeah, which is another lesson you can learn from anybody. You can learn from everybody. So it's, it's think about the questions that your stakeholders have, whether that's the board or your colleagues on the executive or even your team. And the more we place ourselves into the mindset and seat of other people, the more we are able to develop our own leadership skills and capabilities. So build your skills, stay curious, and think about the questions that are in the minds of the people that you're going to interface with. Fantastic. Patrick, this has been an absolutely wonderful podcast with you. Maybe just one question to, or two questions, actually, if I may. The first question is just a, just in terms of books you might recommend on leadership. Is there a particular book that you've gone to and, and referenced on more than one occasion that you might want to uh, recommend to others? So the book around which my five C's are, are, are kind of built and, and he does it differently and, and I've sort of moderated a bit is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Fantastic book. It's he, he writes in a sort of narrative form. So it's like a story rather than a, a leadership book. So I think that that is the one that comes first to mind. Brilliant. That's a the great book, great author. He's done uh, The Competitive Advantage as well, which is another another superb book. Amazing. And then if you were able to pick one other CFO, one other finance leader that you would recommend to come on the show, who might that be? I would always recommend someone who's different from me. I don't know many, and I'm not one that I would recommend, a really young person who is in a business with no legacy would be interesting. Or, or you go the other end, there's a chap who I respect and rate called Mike McEwen, who was CFO at 7Trent. He's now gone non-executive, but is, I think he's extremely able and extremely high quality. 
Fantastic. Thank you, Patrick, so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, it's been great having you on the show. It's a pleasure being here, Rob. Thank you. One last thing. If you have a question you'd like to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm to submit it. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense with custom budgets and track transactions in real time, connect accounting software to automate reporting, then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.